Hello, everybody, at futureprimitive.org. Today, I'm happy to be on the phone with Dr. Tony Frohoff, who is the co-founder of the Trans Species Institute of Learning and also director of research at terramarresearch.org. Tony Frohoff is a behavioral and wildlife biologist who has been studying marine mammal behavior and communication for over 20 years. Dr. Frohoff has a doctorate in behavioral biology, an MS in wildlife and fisheries sciences, and a BS in psychology. She specializes in stress and welfare in captive and free-ranging dolphins in response to human activity and has written numerous publications on the subject. Tony, would you tell us what your, um, the names of your books and uh, maybe uh, of a few articles that you've written? Um, certainly. Um, well, our most recent book is Dolphin Mysteries, um, and the subtitle is Unlocking the Secrets of Communication. And that book was by Yale University Press, and uh, that just came out last year uh, with Kathleen Ditsinski. And then we did an anthology called Between Species, celebrating the dolphin-human bond. Um, that was done with nature writer Brenda Peterson. And, uh, you know, just a lot of uh, other scientific and other articles, a lot of them uh, having to actually being featured in um, other publications such as Time Magazine, Smithsonian. Um, most recently, we did, there was a piece uh, where the um, writer went to Baja to uh, study uh, to what I studying with the gray whales down there, and uh, he wrote a cover story for the New York Times Magazine. So um, a lot of what I do, it has to do with other people like yourself who are interviewing me. Good, good. Well, I want to ask you to begin with, um, how did your interest in uh, other mammals uh, begin? How did you become focused on other mammals than human mammals? Oh, good question. Um, usually people just ask me about the dolphins, but I, I think I appreciate that you take the broader perspective in that because mm -hmm. I've had a long-standing love of all other animals, and um, sometimes, yes, it is easier to connect with mammals because they're more like us mm -hmm. in some ways, but I've always felt a great deal of compassion. And uh, as I grew up through the years, I realized that I wanted to be more effective in what is we now call our trans-species community with other animals, and I did not like to see the... Um, just the travesties that were occurring uh, to other beings who were sentient mm -hmm. uh, simply because they were not human. So um, that combined with some really surprising experiences with dolphins is what led me to be a scientist. Tony, what comes to me is um, I'm sure you've given some thought to uh, why 
many human beings feel so separate from uh, other mammals. I mean, people have relationships with cats and dogs, etc. But a little further down the line, it's, it's harder for uh, people to see animals not as objects. to objectify other animals in the same way that, or perhaps at least a similar way that we objectify women um, in some cultures or older people or, or mm-hmm. children. But, you know, and, and really not looking at who they are, but really seeing them only for what they are. And, you know, I'm not a philosopher as much as a, a researcher with, you know, animal behavior, including our own behavior, but yes. I see that we, my perception is that we're so removed from nature, and increasingly so, that the connection or miscon- you know, the disconnect or the connect mm-hmm. with other species seems to be fraught with problems, even in our most well-intentioned efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, point, uh, one case in point would be um, captive swim programs with dolphins. And I can discuss that a little bit with you if you like. Yes, that would be wonderful, because there's been so much emphasis in the last few years through people of good will, good heart, and good spiritual intentions, organizing groups to go and swim with dolphins in captivity. And uh, to a certain extent, that has surprised me. Yes, and I bring that up in uh, part because I, I consider um, dolphins to be somewhat of the gateway animal. You know, they have the gateway drugs. Yeah. They call them. <laughs> I consider dolphins to be somewhat of a gateway animal uh, in which I hope that people's uh, love and respect for dolphins may then bring them into the more natural world in its broadest form and habitat and other species so that their compassion for dolphins may increase um, and spill over into uh, other animals. And, and I question whether or not uh, the captive swim programs can do that. And I can say that I initially was working with uh, captive dolphins mm-hmm. over 20 years ago when John Lilly had the dolphins, Joe and Rosie, yes. uh, in a captive facility. Right. And I was you know, just a very young volunteer, and it happened to be at that facility where um, the very first commercial swim with the dolphin program uh, was uh, being developed. Mm-hmm. So I would be working and, and, and playing with Joe and Rosie and helping to care for them right. on one side of the area and on the other side of the uh, pens, they kind of, I call them cages in the right. water. Um, they were conducting commercial swim programs. And at first the idea just seemed amazing. I thought, oh, these are not concrete pools. They're not completely like captivity. And this is just wonderful because I just assumed the dolphins wanted to play with us. And it was only until I did what was the first study on captive swim programs, looking at what the dolphins were experiencing, not just what the people were experiencing, that I came to see that we were, in essence, torturing the same dolphins uh, who we uh, thought we were loving in the process of swimming with them. Wow, what a paradox. Uh Truly, and, and, you know, 
know, it, it, to me it speaks volumes to what you're referred to as, you know, our connection with nature and the natural world or what we may now be seen as our disconnect, but our attempt to reconnect with nature. And it, to me it's almost, I, I see it almost a visual of, you know, a toddler who's, who's learning or, you know, and, and sometimes really messing up and causing problems mm -hmm. in the process. So I'm hoping that we're now in a new era mm -hmm. where we're seeing that um, if we're going to if we're going to recognize that dolphins are intelligent, um, which they are, this is not a philosophy, it's an anatomical and, and biological and behavioral fact. It, um, if we're to acknowledge their intelligence, their emotion, their capacity for deep, deep emotional complexity, then uh, we must also acknowledge the need for us to respect them as their own individuals and for them to make their own choices and not rip them apart from their families and their societies to put them in what we may think are acceptable cages or fences mm -hmm. um, just so they can exist for our benefit. Um, but hopefully to transcend this and get into a, a new era in which we can um, appreciate them for who they are, not what they are, and to be more reciprocal in our relationship with them and the other species with whom we share the planet. Beautiful. Well, you see, uh, a couple of times, and I, I recognize uh, completely, Tony Forhoff, that you are a scientist, and yet um, I want to ask you a question um, and I've heard you say a couple of times, I've heard you talk about compassion for these other animals. And in my experience, I've acquired compassion when I could feel what another person feels within me. So in, in your work with um, different species, how would you recommend that we as humans, those who want to, can feel as these other sentient beings feel in order to develop compassion for them? Uh, if I understand your question correctly, John, I think it's um, a lot of it might have to do with um, a degree of humility. Uh -huh. And for example, when I've been fortunate enough to study and be in the presence of whales such as gray whales who have uh, shown not just gentleness around us but the generosity of, um, of being sociable and really even trusting their young around us. Mm. And I, it, for me, it's been a matter of wanting to earn their trust and ask, are we deserving of that trust? But to get more to your question, I know that for me, I have become what I consider to be more humane in my humanity mm -hmm. in the presence of other species, as ironic as that might seem. Yes. And by saying in the presence of, I say in a respectful manner, um, on their terms. Um, for example, um, you know, even though studying dolphins in the wild is, or, you know, is very, can sound very glamorous to people. Um, uh, one of my 
greatest teachers was a dog who I um, rescued from from an animal shelter. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't just a matter of me bolstering up, and I don't think it's a matter of people bolstering up their own egos and feeling better about themselves uh, for doing something good because of so many of our teachers have taught, you know, have shared, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's our, you know, people and, you know, spiritual leaders or, or people who are inspiring, it, it, those acts really need to be done, um, it seems, with an act of, of selflessness and, and with, hub- and, you know, not with hubris or pride, but with humility. Mm-hmm. But it's been more the, the lessons that, for example, that dog taught me in knowing her. Mm-hmm. And seeing the incredible, incredible depth of her being and her consciousness and seeing what would happen, what, what a loss there would have been to this planet had she been killed in an animal shelter. Yes, yes. Um, so so it's, um, it, I think that being open to the possibility that our version of intelligence um, you know, it's not the paragon of intelligence. We put ourselves in an evolutionary tree and we put ourselves at the top. But as a neurobiologist uh, colleague of mine, Lori Marino, states, um, we are not the most highly evolved species. Um, we put ourselves at, at the top of that evolutionary tree. Mm-hmm. If you truly look at this from an objective perspective, we only do that um, because we've constructed that tree. If dolphins and whales, for example, were to construct that tree, they would very likely put themselves on top <laughs> because they have been in their current physiological form for millions of years before we were even homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I call them, and some other people do as well, our elders. That's right. And so um, I think that the degree of compassion um, from uh, may come from one of humility as well. And I believe that the humility, and and um, and by that I don't I don't mean humility in the sense of embarrassment. I of mean course. humbleness. Yes. And and willingness to accept that there is so much more than than humans in this much more than human world that is of great great value that um, we can learn from them, but that they they have existed for millennia before us, mm-hmm. and they probably truly know the sense of the of the word sustainability. You know that that word's been so so. Yes. Sustainable. Yes. And and for example, marine mammals have been coexisting with fisheries for millennia. And there used to be ton, tons, literally tons more of marine mammals out there than there are now. And immense. And just in a few hundred years, we've wiped out our fisheries. That's right. That's right. So I I, are, I hope that you know my time with dolphins and whales. From that, I've learned to to advocate for um, something that's better than sustainable because I would hope that we can have in our earth something more than which we can sustain. I hope we can have more from which we can all thrive upon. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you, 
what uh, what has been your, your most life changing moment with a whale, for instance? Oh wow! Good <laughs> question. Um, there have been so many. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, I I can share a story with you. Okay. I I wrote about in one of our books, um, but about it feels even more you know to share it with you is, is more intimate because it was such an intimate encounter Thank you. Um, you know I've, I have been studying human dolphin interactions for so many years and just so blessed by what I have observed and witnessed and sometimes even been a part of but it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I went to see um with a really well-respected um, and respectful uh, tour operator um, to see the gray whales in their uh, birthing and calving lagoons in Baja, mm -hmm. Mexico. Mm -hmm. And these gray whales, they travel from these birthing and calving lagoons in Baja, Mexico on the Pacific coast um, all the way up the North American continent up past Alaska and sometimes into the Chukchi Sea and such. But so it's one of the longest migrations of any mammal. Mm -hmm. But they, um, we had the opportunity to go there um, about ten years ago, and a mother whale came and brought her calf over to our boat. And I knew that this was not unusual. Yes. It's special, but not completely unusual. So we were here in the presence of this, um, gosh, probably 40-foot mother gray whale and her little baby, who was probably, I don't know, 15 feet or so long, and, our, and the baby was almost as long as, or if not longer, than the boat we were in. And, uh, yeah. But the size isn't what impressed me you know, or, or the most, what really was the most amazing was the breadth of the mother's generosity mm. in terms of actually encouraging her baby to come, not just see us, but allowing her baby to interact with us in the boat. And, you know, I, here I'm observing this with my video camera and collecting my data. Mm -hmm. But I should say at this point something very important to me is that usually I'm a very hands-off person when it comes to wildlife. Yes. And I think that if nothing else, I've learned that because we are just beginning, I think, again, to reconnect with the what I call the kindred wild, yes. you know, that which is wild within us as well as what is wild without us, we are, we are fumbling in a way and we're learning and we need to let the animals teach us. But in the same sense, it's really important for people not to feed animals in the wild because that's where we get in a, in a sense of where we're kind of the center of their universe. Yes. And to not touch them or try to put ourselves, insert ourselves into their world. Mm -hmm. So this has been my philosophy for a long time, but yet I bring it up because at this point, because especially dolphins and whales can be unique at times because they will sometimes approach us 
And this is exactly what happened with the mother and the, and the cat. Mm-hmm. And so I even had to put my own approach aside when the mother herself, everybody was oogling and ogling over this calf and baby, basically giving the calf a, a body massage. And then the mother came up and she just came up right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I, it, it was, I had to put, you know, I, I had to reciprocate in this. And I went out and stretched my arm out and, and I touched her and I, I rubbed alongside her head and in the process she was looking at me in the eye and it was phenomenal because it was on her terms and I I did not want to say no to what were her guidelines, not mm-hmm. my, you know, it, it, this was up to her. Mm-hmm. This was her situation that she invited me into. And what I noticed um, then, what we all noticed, was that she had a harpoon scar. Mm-hmm. And it was a healed harpoon scar probably from decades before, mm-hmm. many decades before, or perhaps from up in the Judge GC. And uh, even despite that, her having survived that harpoon hit, she now um, had extended this generosity to us of her what I would call, in my human terms, a moment of friendship and a deep, deep trust. Because these whales, um, the gray whales, um, as gentle as they appear now, mm-hmm. they were once termed the devil fish by whalers wow. who had come into these lagoons about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they came in and they slaughtered all of them. And what is now... You know, I mean, the, those lagoons turned to blood, and they called the mother whales devilfish because they so um, vehemently fought against the whalers, literally, uh, violently and mm-hmm. fiercely, mm-hmm. to protect their young. Sure. Only to protect their young. And so here we have the transition from these whales, mother whales who are called devilfish, can you imagine that, for protecting their young, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, to um, literally uh, bringing their their young up to see us in the boats. And so I had to ask, you know, did we deserve this trust? Mm. And how do we, how do we become deserving of this trust? Because they're still whaling in Japan and certain other countries. And um, we have so much work to do. And it's just that thanks to the Mexican government and to the tourist dollars that go down there and what I will say the very responsible and uh, kind whale watching operators Mm -hmm. who go down there and really let the whales interact with us on their terms. It's not like whale watching everywhere. Um, Some places, even if it's in the wild, it's still not respectful. But here in the lagoons, in San Ignacio in particular, the Mexican government and the whale watch operators have been respectful. I I read in one of your articles that um, the whale watching industry is a 2.1 billion industry and the, the whale hunting industry in uh, Japan and Norway uh, has to be implemented by the government because uh, there is not much money going into it. Is, is that hopeful? Well, it is on many levels. Um, I mean, whales are worth more alive than dead 
point. Um, the unfortunate thing is the Save the Whales movement that was, um, you know, perhaps the most powerful of all the wildlife movements um, ever, you know, and mm-hmm. conservation movements ever yes. implemented, that we need that again right now. We need that again right now, Not, um, but not just for whaling, but to help elephants in Africa and wolves right here in Idaho who were just taken off the endangered species list this year and now are being given, the people are being given permits to shoot them. But to get back to the whales, yes, Mm -hmm. we definitely need to recognize that. And some people who are, some of the men who are whalers in Japan have now turned to whale watching Mm -hmm. and are um, enjoying very lucrative businesses. But uh, this might bring us to the movie The Cove that is out. I encourage everybody to see it. A lot of people who love animals already say, I don't want to subject myself to that. And I think it's important to take care of ourselves. And in the same sense, um, despite my work in all these areas with dolphin and, and whale welfare, I believe that this is perhaps the most important marine mammal movie of our of our era and our generation and I believe that it's our obligation as human beings to see this movie to bear witness Mm -hmm. to what I call the dolphin death camps Mm -hmm. because in two weeks Jana from this day to this interview anyway they're going to um, they declare that they will again start the hunt of um, not just the hunt the slaughter (laughs) slaughter. of over 20,000 dolphins whales and porpoise as they have done in previous years. And it's not not that a hunt itself is bad enough, but the way that the hunt's done is so inhumane. And then they are brought into a cove, and they're kept in this cove. And a lot of this feeds into the captive display industry and the swim programs that people go to around the world. And by the way, if people don't go to the movie, because um, I hope people do, not just to bear witness, but also because ticket sales tell uh, the movie industry what we want to see and will support the dolphins. If anybody doesn't go because they feel too sensitive for the movie, I really hope they spend that two hours and maybe the money they would have spent in the movie and go on the website uh, for the movie The Cove, and there's a list of things that people can do. So um, I offer that as an alternative that I hope everybody who cares about dolphins will do. Um, But uh, back to what's happening in um, just a few weeks in September, as in previous years, uh, the town of Taiji will again, um, in this cove, will probably turn into what I call the... um, dolphin death camp again and the dolphin massacre it's almost a a level of genocide will occur where over 20,000 dolphins porpoise and whales a year are still slaughtered and will be again um, unless action is taken and this is not just a matter of slaughter um, it's a matter of how it's conducted it's a matter of how the dolphins are brought into an area that is fenced off. And that's why I use the term dolphin death camp in the sense that um, it is eerie to even just know about that we can do this to 
to hundreds, thousands of dolphins at a time. And sometimes the people from the, well, often the people from the captive facilities on the ocean area will go and they will sit there and they'll choose which dolphins they want for their captive swim programs. These people will come from all over the world sometimes. And they will pay maybe $100,000 or more for a dolphin. Then those who are not chosen will then be killed in perhaps the most inhumane way possible. And so, and then maybe used for fertilizer or um, um, as toxic mercury Latin meat for school children who then get sick. So uh, it's it's horrifying on many levels, even if people just care about the environment and the contaminants um, in, that are being fed to school children mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, what is happening there, to me, it's kind of like the epicenter of what we need to address and why everybody who goes to a captive dolphin swim program or a sea life park, yeah. um, even if the dolphins, the people there are of higher integrity than those who obtain dolphins at places like this, there's an indirect contribution to this activity. I'm almost speechless, and uh, thank you, because I wanted to ask you this question, you know, uh, I, I have been asking myself, why do I so much want to see this movie? And um, so you have, uh, in a way, answered that. Let's talk about, um, yeah, so I will go and see the movie, and I will take friends to see the movie. Let's talk about your work with uh, elephants, and um, elephant poaching in Africa, if you will. Dr. Gabe Bradshaw um, has um, been working with me. Um, well, she's been doing her own absolutely seminal work and um, with elephants. Um, but we have the Transspecies Institute of Learning, yeah. and that's where we're trying to teach a lot of what we've learned from our, our work with and being with uh, elephants and dolphins and whales uh, to others. Um, but. Um, maybe I'll start with telling you a bit about Gay's work because she identified um, post-traumatic stress disorder in elephants. Wow! And she, yeah, and really, and and in a in a way that is consistent um, from a neurobiological as well as behavioral perspective. Um, you know, in concordance with what we consider uh, PTSD mm-hmm. and are, you know, for example, our war veterans and such. Um, and in fact, we have uh, several people on our advisory board for the Transpecies Institute um, who work uh, beautifully, bravely, and um, um, so intelligently with post-traumatic stress disorder in um, whether it's Holocaust victims or victims in our own species and humans. And they see the parallels that have occurred in elephants. And I mean, my own work with elephants has been brief. I just think they're amazing. And, you know, as John Lilly noted many years ago, um, they have amazing neural, neurological, you know, not just capacities, but they exhibit some of the most um, exquisite 
behaviors and uh, uh, acts of compassion that I've seen ever, um, you know, along with the cetaceans. And the, uh, the, what we found, uh, well, what Gay has found really, um, she worked with Cynthia Moss and Joyce Poole and some others, is that she found that elephants who are subject to the same type of events that some humans experience, such as watching your family be gunned down mm-hmm. in front of you when you're growing up, it can lead to the, the manifestation of similar um, behaviors. For example, um, the importance of having a mother. Yeah. <laughs> elephants are very matrilineal and top of the fact that the young stay with their mothers like ours, like our human yes. children do, um, under the best, under good circumstances for many years. And when the mothers are taken away from them, let alone killed right in front of them, trauma will ensue. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are blaming elephants for raging on human villages or for, um, you know, killing rhinoceros or whatnot. And what's happening is that they're experiencing severe bouts of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the parallels are, are stunning and shocking, and yet they're still calling over in Africa right now, and people need to help. Yeah, yeah. So um, I understand Ed Tick, who uh, works with uh, war veterans, has joined your board. Ed Tick comes across um, to me as somebody who is really such a pioneer in that, in the way that he has looked at indigenous societies and how they address uh, trauma and through community. And for example, he mentioned something about how when war veterans come to, they, they you know, come back from the war and mm-hmm. they come home, people will throw a, I think his analogy was a barbecue or something for them. Uh-huh. and. Uh-huh. For them, they might need a deeper type of community, level of community support because mm-hmm. perhaps even being in a picnic situation with family and friends, what they've experienced and seen and gone through is, is so radical that it may be hard for them to relate to even the people with whom they were the closest and yes. in, in the same level. And so it's really a community-based approach. And so I, we're finding this too with, you know, for example, trying to heal baby elephants. Um, Daphne, uh, Daphne Sheldrake over in um, uh, Kenya in mm-hmm. Nairobi through the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust, she's been raising orphaned elephants, many of whom have watched their whole families be slaughtered. And um, learning that it takes a community. I mean, it really does take a village. We are community-based animals. Yes. And sometimes we really need to address not just um, the psychological needs, but address the spiritual needs, um, which can come from community. So we're learning a lot um, in, in our efforts to help animals other than ourselves. We're learning a lot about ourselves and Mm -hmm. how to heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, towards that end, if I could talk a little bit, if I could mention something about the dolphin healing. Oh, yes, please. 
uh, we're going to uh, speak about uh, dolphin-assisted healing. Yes, there is the um, very often glamorized issue about dolphins and their powers to heal. And um, I say often glamorized not because I'm cynical about the ability of dolphins to heal. In fact, I, I believe firmly in the power of all living beings to heal each other. Uh, but I say glamorized to the point where we have glamorized uh, dolphins and put standards upon them um, to be somewhat of supernatural healers. Mm-hmm. And in the consequence, we have uh, not only caused them to suffer um, tremendously, but also to die, um, sometimes um, in large numbers, because of our desire to be healed by them. It's almost like we're using them as medicine, uh, not realizing the consequences that we are, in fact, using them, not healing with them, but using them as one would instead of, you know, directly killing an animal, for example, they, you know, may kill tigers or, you know, elephants for herbs and tinctures. Um, This may sound dramatic, but in the full picture, dolphins are being captured and killed throughout the world so that they can be um, supplied. Mm as medicine, so to speak, um, captured almost by the hundreds in in some parts of the world, and illegally so, Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, supply captive swim programs and programs where people want to be healed by them in dolphin-assisted therapy programs. And this might sound dramatic to some. So so basically, you know, there are many, many aspects to this. I do believe that dolphins, as well as um, my friend's dog, and if you have any, you know, I mean, uh, horses, I mean, there are so many other beautiful animals with whom we share the planet, and they provide so many opportunities for us to heal. But unless we can heal with them, I believe, unless it's collaboratively healing, you know, collaborative with them in the sense that it's by their choice or it's at least to their benefit, then how can it be true healing? You know, if we're causing the suffering, you know, if we're we're ripping a dolphin out of his or her environment or forcing him or her to breed or reproduce as chattel Mm -hmm. in um, a dolphin facility, um, not that that's right to do with cows either necessarily by some people's standards, but you know what I mean. It's just it, it, so that we can have a positive experience with them. It's um, not what I see as holistic healing. Mm-hmm. Holistic healing, we need to view the world as a whole as a whole living ecosystem going back to Gaia. Mm-hmm. And um, for us to be interacting with dolphins who are prisoners, no matter what the facility operators say, if a dolphin is in a cage or a pen, mm. it's still a confining environment, um, even if it's not a concrete tank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, can you give an example of um, of mutually respectful healing between humans and dolphins? I see it as um, I, something you know that may be called collaborative. You know a sense of collaborative 
healing is at one end of the spectrum might be where we're actually helping the dolphins mm -hmm. and that is in fact part of our own healing. For example, I um, just picked up an issue of Psychology Today, yes. which I haven't read in what seems like a million years, but it was in a in an office, and I had a few minutes, and I read that in this issue there was a man who said his depression was healed, but he said, as, I'm quoting from this article in Psychology Today, at his bleakest, he found a wounded bird. Learning to care for it brought him and his wife back together. Wow. And um, this is a quote from uh, Will Guccia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's an article by Michael Yepko. Um, and to me, if we can help, you know, if it's reciprocal healing, Beautiful. collaborative, mm -hmm. then we're perhaps not just benefiting more in the therapeutic context, in the same way that this man was, but we're also healing our planet and perhaps giving ourselves a sense of agency and and worth in, in the world because so many people feel despair. And, and when you're getting to more serious psychological issues and, and or physiological issues such as autism and things like that, mm -hmm. I will say that Dr. Betsy Smith, who um, was the inventor of dolphin-assisted therapy um, in many respects. She uh, actually started by doing uh, doing it in captivity during the with the, during the dolphin swim program initiation yes. in the late '80s, early '90s. And in our book, our first anthology, Between Species, mm -hmm. celebrating the dolphin-human bond, she writes that she has come, um, well, I interpret what she wrote as coming full circle in where she developed dolphin-assisted therapy, but now is, she tried doing it in captivity, realized that she was, it was in, in a sense, it was exploiting the dolphins and exploiting the people. Mm -hmm. Because people would pay huge amounts of money yes. when the, she thought, as a trained psychologist, she found that people were getting the same results from working with domestic animals, such as dogs, cats. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the dolphins in swim programs in captivity could sometimes be dangerous. And she said something to the effect of, well, you know, people wouldn't put their children in a, in a pen with strange dogs. Why would they do so with a wild animal? Yeah. And I would add to that, especially a wild animal who's forced to the confines of captivity yes. and is this, you know, has been traumatized and stressed out mm -hmm. and may react violently mm -hmm. as, a, as a consequence, which, which does happen um, more frequently than people know. So she's come full circle. She tried doing it in the wild, and she found that more people wanted to be healed by dolphins than the dolphins could sustain. Because right. ecologically, dolphins are under a lot of pressure. And they're trying to just find fish. They can't play as much anymore. You know, times are hard in the U.S. Times are hard for dolphins, too, now. Yeah. Because the fisheries are depleted. So, so dolphins, in a lot of areas, probably are, you know, really suffering more. And their work day is increased. So they may not have the luxury of playing and healing us that they, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. That they used to. So I think we need to um, realize where we are now. We're in a 
different place um, in our world and in our times. And perhaps a way of reciprocal healing might be to go to volunteer in an area where um, dolphins need protection. Mm -hmm. And um, if we are going to uh, have an interaction with dolphins or whales, to go to a place where we have confidence that we're not intruding, where the dolphins, it's their choice to approach our boat or approach us in the water mm -hmm. or approach us on land. And there are quite a few places where this can happen. It's just you have to work for it and earn it. So mutual, mutual compassion with the other animals other than us. Yes, yes, exactly. Because I believe that, you know, we talk about world peace unless we extend world peace to encompass all living sentient beings who share the planet with us. How can it really truly be global peace, right, Joanna? Wow, that's wonderful comment. I mean, I say that with an obvious bias towards the um, other species with yes. whom we share the planet, but yes. they're, off, they're almost always forgotten in the mix. Absolutely. We must uh, see ourselves as equals, yes. Yes, so if we can heal ourselves and the planet um, simultaneously, you know, I think we have a unique opportunity and are being called to do that at this point. And um, to get past that, you know, myself included, it's getting past the point of, oh, I want to kiss a dolphin or I want to swim with dolphins or I want to do this and that. It's like, well, what would be best for all involved? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, maybe I can see dolphins, but what would the most responsible and, and respectful way um, of doing that? How would that be? Beautiful question. Um, yes. Really taking it to the next level. So, Tony, uh, we will um, come around to closing our conversation, and uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, what are the projects you are working on at this moment? Well, um, I'm most excited right now about two projects. I mean, of course, we're with Tiramar Research, who, um, which has been our all-volunteer nonprofit and um, for about 20 years now, but... Uh, we, we've relocated to the Santa Barbara area because we have uh, found that the bottlenose dolphins in this region do not necessarily have the affluence of the people in the region. Wow. <laughs> they have uh, not been studied to the, um, to the point of knowing, you know, if they're doing okay or not. You know, people are, see them regularly mm -hmm. along the coast and taking walks along the beach. Mm -hmm. But this, there's this area... Um, from the north and south of Santa Barbara where there's a huge gap in knowledge. So we started a project um, which I call Dolphin Pep, Dolphin Psychology and Ecology Project. Yeah. That can be found through our website, Terramar Research, and through um, protectourdolphins.com. Mm -hmm. And that website is trans-species.com. 
org, and we are offering courses in the new and emerging scientific paradigm of transspecies psychology, humanities, and learning to provide students and others with certification and learning opportunities that are more holistic and also more scientifically appropriate for this day and age. We, we, we think, can I repeat that? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Transspecies Institute also offers courses and certifications and one-on-one internships where we can teach what is often overlooked in universities but will, we believe, more frequently be uh, brought into them. Very good. It makes me think we've come a long way from Woodstock and we've come a long way from John Lilly's first experiments. And, and John, you know, it's, it's full circle. You know, I still run into people now who are um, helping us with our work and we do need a lot of help with our work, you know. Um, but with the, you know, what everybody does right now with the economy, but, you know, a lot of people have supported his work and are seeing now a new wave of, of what he has done, but now more appropriate for the times now and and what we're being called to do at this point in our society and what I would call our transspecies society. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your generosity of words, Tony Frohoff. And um, I hope a lot of people listen to your uh, words of transspecies healing. Thank you so much, Joanna. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.